From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, highlights from Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Pandemic. The second half of the program will feature encore presentations of topics previously heard on Mayo Clinic Radio. Let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. I'm pleased to say that I have with me again today Dr. Greg Poland virologist and infectious disease expert at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here, Greg. Yeah, fun to be with you again. Well, I am looking forward to hearing what you have to say to us today. The news keeps coming out. We are in the U.S. now at about five and a half million cases with over 170,000 deaths. We still have prominent outbreaks, particularly in Florida, Texas, along the southern and southwest rim. Schools are starting back, and uh, we've heard of outbreaks at the college level, the the school level. Most recently, L.A. County, which is, the I think, the second largest school district in the U.S., decided to cancel any kind of in-person classes as they try to get a hold on this. But there's something interesting to note. New York, and New York City in particular, have kept cases suppressed below 1%. Now, this is really remarkable, but observers are noticing that because of what New York City went through, they they don't deny the seriousness of this, and people take it very seriously. They're wearing masks. They're maintaining distance. They closed bars and things like that where there there are known uh, uh, places where the virus Uh, easily transmits, and it works. And somehow it's been difficult to convince our culture, our society, that strict adherence to those things in toto, that is doing all of them together, is a very, very powerful antidote to this virus. Months ago, I had actually heard that when the Amazon boxes come to the house, you should be careful because the um, virus can live on uh, surfaces for a period of time. And then there's been concern within some food packaging plants about um, the spread of, of the virus, perhaps not just in the food, but via the packaging. And I'm wondering, what can you tell us about how to handle food packaging? Is that something we should be concerned about? Should we be wearing gloves to the grocery store? Should we be wiping off our groceries? Yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Uh, first, maybe just a little bit of a, of a primer here. So the fact that you can find virus by PCR doesn't mean, so to speak, that it's live virus. It just means elements of the genetic material are there. The second thing is it doesn't mean that it's infectious virus. Part of what infects us is the inoculum, the amount of virus. So for example, uh, it's highly doubtful whether one particle of virus could actually cause infection. No one knows what that, that inoculum size is. 
All right, so what, what has been done is a number of studies showing that you can find the genetic material for days, sometimes even weeks, on various kinds of hard surfaces or external surfaces. The ones that are at risk are where there's high inoculum size. I go, <coughs> and then I grab a doorknob, and you're right behind me and grab it. We think that's logically a risky thing because we know with other respiratory viruses like influenza that you can get in, you can infect other people and get infected that way. No one has proven that with food or with external packaging. That's different than the hard surface in a hospital room, for example, where that inoculum size might be very high if it, if it housed a COVID patient. So, so first of all, uh, I think we can say there's not been a single demonstration that uh, viruses on food then infect somebody or on a package then infect somebody. You've been giving us updates all along on the vaccines that are being developed. Can you tell us how the vaccine trials that are in phase three are going right now? The phase three trials that are occurring in the U.S. have enrolled slower than, than thought, at least last week. Um, remember, they have to enroll 30,000. They had enrolled about 4,500. Now, only roughly about 59, I think it was, of the 84 clinical trial sites had opened as of a week or two ago. So I expect that that will accelerate uh, a little more. But when you think about it, those first participants that enrolled, let's say, early August, you have to wait 30 days, then they get another dose. Two weeks after that, they get a blood draw. Then all of those hundreds of thousands of uh, laboratory assays have to be done. The data has to be analyzed, et cetera. You're talking well into 2021 before those data would be available, could be looked at by the FDA and by uh, expert advisors. So I, I think realistically, and, and we've said it all along, unless another mechanism is used, if we go through full licensure, I don't think we should be looking for a vaccine for another six months and for some people because of the time it takes to manufacture doses a year even. I had shared with you that I had seen an interesting study done, which I thought was actually rather well done, where they compared masks and how effective they are while we're waiting for that vaccine that unfortunately is taking longer than we wish. And I had read about four different types of masks and their, uh, their efficacy. And I was hoping that you and I could just talk a little bit about them today. And I have a gator on myself right now. So if you can start by telling us about gators. And these are very lightweight. They have, they're kind of a stretchy cotton. If you held them up to the light, you can see through it. And what they found is that really did not decrease the number of large viral particles by very much. And in fact, they found something worrisome. And that is by expelling the particle through the material, it actually served to take the big particles and fracture them into more dangerous, smaller particles. So these masks don't prevent you from expelling virus and in fact, make it riskier for other people. Next, they tried bandanas, a double layer of a bandana. That decreased the number of particles, I think, by about uh, 20, 30%, something like that. 
And then, Greg, this is the most common type of mask. We right. call it a surgical mask. It's a right. paper mask. That's a three-layer paper mask or so-called medical or surgical mask. Those are surprisingly good worn properly. They're not perfect. There is no, even the N95 is not perfect. Hand washing isn't perfect. Physical distancing isn't perfect. But together, they're about as perfect as you can get, as it turns out. So you're probably reducing uh, the expulsion of viral uh, material by about 95 plus percent with that uh, three-ply surgical mask. That's a very good mask worn properly. I have seen people wearing masks with the valves on them. I think to allow, that's to allow their own carbon dioxide to escape. The valved N95s are not as effective as the N95 mask. It's it's certainly better than nothing, certainly better than some of the uh, cheap one or even two layer cotton masks. So, you know, there's no harm in wearing it and there is benefit in it. But that the, the presupposition behind the mask is a faulty one, that somehow CO2 levels are going to build up in me. There is no evidence for that. So I had looked on the CDC website to see what they said about various masks, and they said you should not wear a mask with a valve right. because essentially all you're doing is pushing out your virus to right. others and right. not providing the protection that the mask typically would. This has been fun. Thank you. We compared our gaiters today. We'll save them for fall for a fashion accessory. Thanks so much for being with us today, Greg. With us today has been, again, infectious disease and virology expert, Dr. Greg Poland from the Mayo Clinic. We appreciate him being here to share updates with us, and we appreciate you listening. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. The start of a new school year is always filled with excitement and anxiety. With COVID-19 this year, back to school is even more challenging for kids, teachers, and parents. Well, here to discuss that with us today is psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk. Dr. Sawchuk is the division chair of integrated behavioral health at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here, Dr. Sawchuk. Great. Thanks for having me again, Dr. Gazalka. I've heard you a little bit about the, the talk that you've done around here about going back to school. Do you have any basic guidelines for us? One of the big things that you talked about a little bit earlier was just uncertainty. We've all been dealing with uncertainty to a greater or lesser degree. And I think it's really important for us to remind ourselves that there's a whole lot of stuff going on with the pandemic that we can't control, but there's also some very actionable steps that we can control. So I think especially as we're facing uh, the return to school, um, there's about four things that we want to keep in mind. Um, One, the first thing is just be flexible. And we're not only talking about what we learn in yoga, uh, but just really be flexible with the format uh, of how we learn, whether it be in person, whether it be virtual, whether it be a hybrid between the two. Um, Just be flexible with that. It's all going to look different however we look at it. And it's also subject to change. So being flexible is really, really key. Another thing is to be optimistic. You know, we try to do our best to keep a positive attitude, you know, going forward. And it's really important, especially for parents and caregivers, to model being optimistic as we approach this new school year and just be open to essentially learning new ways of of learning. But being optimistic um, is really, really important. And it's also be supportive. Um, This is, these are challenging times for us all, but we also think about just getting into that 
school environment and we want to be supportive of all those steps and measures that people are taking to maintain safety. So whether we're talking about social distancing and proper hand hygiene and wearing masks, it's really important that we do our part as well to be supportive. And then finally, is just be kind. A lot of us are going through a lot right now. We actually have been going through a lot for quite some time. We're all experiencing distress to a greater or lesser degree. So try to maintain that kindness towards others, especially everybody working very, very hard to figure out not only work schedules, but school schedules to try to find a new way to make this work. With what you said about uncertainty, that really resonated with me because I feel like the whole name of this game that we're in with COVID right now is that things are changing all the time. The advice we're getting is changing. What we need to do to manage this is changing. The knowledge about the virus itself is changing. The world right now is just like a snow globe. It's just kind of shook up. And and the snow in the snow globe is the uncertainty. And and when um, things really started to impact us, you know, much earlier in the spring, towards the end of the winter and and early spring, um, that that was really tough. And, And I think psychologically, we were thinking, okay, two weeks, okay, maybe four weeks we can, you know, uh, handle this. But then we've really kind of gone from a short-term acute care model to more of a longer-term coping model. Um, I think many of us were hoping that schools and work would be all figured out, you know, by this point in time. But here we are, and there's still some uncertainty we need to get through. Very much so. What advice do you have for students, for parents, for teachers on maintaining good mental health? Uh, during this process of going back to school? You know, when we start to look at um, how school is actually going to be going uh, this coming fall, really in a couple of weeks, um, we're looking at different mental health challenges, I think, hitting each of those three areas. So if we think of um, in-person schooling where some places will be doing it, I think you're going to be running into that kind of mixture of both excitement and fear. <laughs> you know, people are going to be at one level so happy to be around their friends and other things, and other people are going to be facing a lot of anxiety and worry about stepping into these areas. And we also think for our young learners, too, they may not understand, you know, um, how in-person schooling is going to look differently now and needing to wear masks and maintain that that social distance. So we always want to make sure we keep those lines of communication open, that we model these good behaviors um, that we know can be effective and helpful for those in-person schooling. For the remote schooling, I think one of the mental health challenges that we're going to be running into is is, um, a couple of things. One is isolation. Um, And a lot of us have been dealing with that already. And and many of us have tried to adapt as best as we can to things being more remote. So hopefully more of those classes that are going more towards virtual is that they're building that sense of community. So hopefully there'll be more of the chat room style where they can have a little bit more interaction, feeling connected. But we also got to make sure that we're looking outside of just the school you know, format. Are there ways that we can encourage our kiddos to stay connected with, again, healthy supports and friends you know, in their lives, also in a healthy and, and safe manner? So that, that social development and staying connected with people to reduce that isolation is extremely uh, important. Another thing that we got to keep in mind, too, is some kids struggle more with just organization and being able to keep up with all um, their homework. And that is, is a different uh, dynamic, whether it's virtual versus in person. So maintaining good communication with um, our teachers remains really important. How do we help our children understand that we're not always okay and that's okay? 
a lot of times our kids saw us going off to school, not didn't really know mom and dad go off to work and they do, they do their thing during the day and come home. But now roles are changing and, and the way we do things is changing and it doesn't always feel okay. And I'm sure it doesn't to our children either. And this all takes a, a toll on us, you know, even with uh, people that we look to that seem to be the most calm and the most cool and the most flexible uh, and the most optimistic about these things, it all still takes a toll on folks. However, we don't want to just say, well, it's okay to not be okay and just gonna leave it at at that because a lot of us are are dealing with to a greater or lesser extent with with stress or sleep problems, worry, um, new financial you know struggles. Um, again, kids uh, wanting to be successful in their schooling and maybe struggling with that as well too. So it's going to take a lot of adaptation you know with that. But once we start to see a lot of those things starting to cause us problems in day to day living it is unbelievably important that we reach out. So whether it be like a parent or a caregiver, we notice maybe our kid is struggling more or being more quieter than usual, or maybe even the opposite. Sometimes they're a little bit more combative, you know, try to maintain that, that calm, you know, stance, but also create an environment where you can talk about it. Um, and likewise, you know, we all also have to take our own self-reflection to see how we're doing. And, and do know that, that help is available. But sometimes a good place to start if you're struggling is start off with your primary care team, family medicine provider, or your pediatrician. They're usually the most in the know of what are available mental health resources located right in your area. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with us before we go today, Craig? Yeah, I just want to remind people again that we will get through this. And I know um, psychologically, it's always easier when there's a light at the end of the tunnel and also when there's something to look forward to. And I think that's been one of the big challenges, you know, the pandemic, that light at the end of the tunnel of getting to the other side of this keeps seemingly get pushed further back or some of the things that we would ordinarily look forward to, like going away on vacation or hanging out with our friends or even going on a date with our partner. Um, a lot of that's been a lot more challenging for us. But um, do um, know that everybody at every level is working very hard to help us all get to the other side of this pandemic. And we'll get there and, and uh, we'll be all the better for it in the end. Well, that's wonderful. Thanks so much for being here, Craig. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Craig Sawchuk, for being here with us today and having a conversation about how we can be resilient in the face of back to school issues uh, during COVID-19. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did, and we wish you a wonderful day. Due to the COVID-19 response, the second half of our show will be encore presentations of previously aired programs. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Reported cases of pertussis, also known as whooping cough, have been on the rise since the 1980s, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Tina Arden, a family medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic, says whooping cough is becoming more common, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, declining vaccination rates or waning immunity from previous vaccines. That's why she and her colleagues are encouraging adults to get vaccinated at least 
least once in their adult life. And pregnant women are encouraged to get a tetanus and whooping cough vaccine in their third trimester of pregnancy to help protect their baby. Now, pertussis is a bacterial infection that can cause upper respiratory symptoms that can be dangerous to younger patients, but also can cause a cough that can last several weeks to even months. It's referred to as whooping cough because of the whooping sound an infected person makes when gasping for air during a coughing fit. Anyone can become infected with pertussis. However, it can lead to serious complications, even death for infants under one. Nearly half of all babies under one in the U.S. who have pertussis end up being treated in the hospital. Complications are most serious for babies under six months. Vaccination is the best prevention. There are two types of vaccines available to protect people against pertussis. The diphtheria tetanus pertussis, or Tdap, is for younger children than seven years old. Tetanus diphtheria pertussis, or Tdap, is for older children and adults, including pregnant women. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, as you know, there are millions of people in this country with heart disease. In fact, it's the number one killer of both men and women in the U.S. And the majority of those people have CAD, or coronary artery disease. And that's when the major blood vessels that supply the muscles of your heart, they supply blood, they supply nutrients, they supply oxygen, and when they become damaged or diseased, it's called coronary artery disease. And that, of course, is usually the result of cholesterol-containing deposits called plaque, along with a little inflammation, and it is a process that we know as atherosclerosis. When the plaque builds up, it narrows your coronary arteries, and that decreases the blood flow to your heart. Eventually, that can cause symptoms that you might recognize, chest pain, shortness of breath, a complete blockage can even cause a heart attack. And we know there's lots of things that you can do to prevent heart disease, but what about reversing the damage that has already been done? Is that possible? Let's find out from a Mayo Clinic preventive cardiologist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Dr. Kopetsky, good to see you. You know, I've once heard you say that you wanted to start a coronary artery disease reversal clinic, suggesting that, in fact, if your coronary arteries were diseased, you could make them better. Yes, very clearly you can. We have the clinic. We just don't call it that, unfortunately. (laughs) But the data, the studies have shown you can reverse heart disease. You can reverse this narrowing of the arteries to the heart. As you mentioned, inflammation or the irritation of the lining of the artery is very important to reduce because that's what actually causes the blood clot to form and the heart attack to occur. And why do you get the inflammation in the first place? Well, that's a great question. There are many things that cause inflammation, smoking, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes. If you don't do those, you stop the progression of heart disease, of the narrowing. But it's really diet, stress control, exercise that will help not only stop the progression, but actually promote the regression or the opening up of the artery. Is there one of those that's most important? Diet, stress control. Number one risk factor now for early death and disease in the United States and soon to be the world, diet. Diet. It used to be smoking? Uh, Smoking was, yeah. Uh, So when you say diet, does that mean you have to become a vegetarian to reverse this damage or broth broth only from here on (laughs) right no no you don't need to be a vegetarian but it helps if you go more towards more plant-based so in the mediterranean diet that we've talked about here before it has four things that aren't vegetarian in it red meat 
which had suggested three ounces a day, a deck of cards. Fish, you know, eat three or four times a week. Uh, dairy products, you know, which is um, it's very limited, just a, like one pat of butter a day. And then uh, things like poultry, white meat, uh, you know, turkey or chicken, poultry. If you can eat mo- most of your calories being plant-based, fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, and then to get full on that stuff and add in a little bit of these other things. But the two things that Americans have forgotten about, and it's ubiquitous, is stress and social support and sleep. They all think, well, everybody's under stress. Don't worry about it. And I don't get much sleep. I never am going to, so don't worry about that either. Those two are huge because they don't allow you to have resiliency and come back and change your lifestyle and lower your stress level. So your heart can be healthier if you get better sleep and reduce your stress. There is no doubt about that. Now, what about cholesterol? Do we still worry about that? The guidelines have come out, and there will be a new paper probably soon. They'll say cholesterol isn't that important. They said that a couple of years ago. And all the press picked up on was that, cholesterol not important. If they would read the article, it would say that we eat so much saturated fat and animal fat and saturated plant fat in this country that the cholesterol we take in isn't as important as it used to be. So you really ought to cut down both the cholesterol and the saturated fat. But you still believe in statins for people who have elevated cholesterol, or are you more suggesting that it can be controlled with diet? In most patients, it can be controlled with diet, but it takes a pretty radical change, and we ask them to migrate to a new diet over one to two years because you can't just do it tomorrow. So statins have been around for a long time, and there are a lot of people taking statins mm-hmm. still, right? Right. Any long-term side effects that you've identified? You know, we've, uh, we have found uh, that it can lead to increased incidence of diabetes, but it's usually an earlier occurrence of diabetes than if you weren't on the statin. So if you are obese, have high fasting blood sugar, have metabolic syndrome with a big paunch, uh, you'll go into uh, become a diabetic about three months earlier than if you weren't on the statin. But for every one patient gets diabetes, five heart attacks are prevented. We've heard that term metabolic syndrome yeah. a, a lot, and it's difficult to understand for uh us and our listeners, <laughs> yes. explain that for us, yeah. will you? Metabolic, metabolic syndrome. syndrome has five factors. One, the main one is the big paunch, big abdominal obesity, which is a very active fat. It puts out chemicals that are bad for us. It makes us more insulin resistant. It which in- for women going through menopause, that's where you're likely to gain weight. Yeah, and women, it's really a higher risk factor okay. for them. Uh, second is blood pressure that's elevated. Third is the low HDL or low good cholesterol that cleans out the arteries. And then the uh, blood pressure, those are the factors that really lead to more inflammation. And if you can control those, you're much better off. We've heard you talk about fish oil before. And as I recall, you're a proponent. Uh, I want to know if you still are. And is that for everybody or is that just for people with heart disease? Well, it, fish oil helps a lot of people. And not just people with heart disease. You know, recent studies show that high dose fish oil, EPA specifically, a certain type of EPA, which is the thing you find on the bottle when you buy in the store, will reduce uh, heart attacks if you have real high triglycerides, even if your LDL is controlled. When it comes to fish and fish oil, if you don't like fish, does fish oil take its place? Well, you'd like ideally to use both of them. And it's better to have the fish, and there's no pill that replaces lifestyle. And the Mediterranean diet is more than just a diet, it's a lifestyle. All right, aspirin, baby aspirin. 
who should be taking it? You still uh, think it's a preventive for people who have had heart disease or have heart disease? Yeah, if you have had heart disease, aspirin is beneficial. There's no there's no uh, argument about that unless you have bleeding problems from it. If you don't have heart disease, it's not as helpful as we used to think it was. You have to be a higher risk for a heart attack over the next 10 years, 10, 12, 15% risk. Those people benefit. But the average person, which is lower, like 7, 8% risk, they, they probably wouldn't benefit. And how does it work? Uh, it stops the uh, inflammation in the lining of the arteries, and it also stops the blood clot formation in the lining of the artery. When uh, exercise is something that you're supposed to do, I think that can be in- intimidating for people. When you say exercise yeah. is what a patient needs to do, what does that mean? Yeah. Physical activity is why I've gone to more, because exercise, they kind of fold across their arms and, you know, and look at the ceiling. <laughs> and physical activity is two things. One, don't be sedentary. Every hour, get up and move around for three or four minutes. A lot of the big corporations around this country and the world now have a thing every hour where you get up and you move around. So go up two floors to go to the bathroom. Go talk to a, a colleague instead of sending him an email. The second thing is intense physical activity, which is what we used to do a lot of. When you do intense activity, three great things happen very quickly. One is the heart is told to pump more blood because the muscles say, hey, we're running from the saber-toothed tiger. we got to try to survive. The second thing is the blood vessels get bigger, which lowers blood pressure. And the third thing is the muscles say, okay, belly fat, you're up next. If we survive this run from the saber-toothed tiger, I need more energy because I only have 20 minutes of energy in my cell. You start breaking down and sending me extra energy because that's where we put extra calories as an adult. So it's the American dream, I call it. You can actually, we've shown here with research, you can reduce abdominal fat with interval activity. Our thanks to Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, preventive cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Kopetsky. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, regenerative medicine, what is it and how is it helping patients? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Download the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast today for the latest complete versions of interviews you hear on Mayo Clinic Radio. Find Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts on your favorite podcast providers. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we have all heard the term regenerative medicine. What does that mean? Exactly. (laughs) What does it really mean? Well, I think it's the field of medicine that tries to replace or to regenerate human cells, human tissues, or even organs to get them back to normal. Now, it also includes the possibility of actually growing tissues and organs in the lab and implanting them in the body that can't heal itself. That's amazing. It is incredible stuff. In short, it's a way to actually repair or replace diseased or injured tissues and organs. And here to tell us more is the Director of Regenerative Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Andre Terzik. Welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you for having me. Dr. Terzik, it's it's an honor to have you on the program. So what has regenerative medicine allowed you to do that you never thought possible? It's an exciting time. I think we see successes around all fields of medicine, essentially. I think the breakthrough of the year, for example, is in cancer. We're able to treat many of the blood cancers in ways we never could imagine before. It's How a so? different medicine than what we used to, to train in school. We're using a technology called regenerative immunotherapy, also known as CAR T-cells, which is able to target 
cancer cells and very specifically get rid of them. So instead of, for example, chemotherapy, where it's toxic to all tissues, including the cancer, these are just targeted at the cancer and leave the rest of the body alone? You can almost speak of smart cells in many ways. So you're using your own body to essentially get rid of uh, of cancer cells. And the successes are, are throughout. Uh, another breakthrough of the year is clearly neurosurgery. We saw earlier this year the first case here at the Mayo Clinic where a patient that was quadriplegic was able to be treated successfully with uh, stem cell intervention. Of course, much more research needs to be done. Many more evidences needs to be put uh, put forward. But it is very encouraging to see these early early successes. Now, you said stem cell intervention. Tell tell us exactly what you did to help restore this uh, quadriplegic. And quadriplegic means that the injury to the spinal cord was high enough that none of the limbs work. The stem cells are those magic seeds, in a way, that uh, originally we thought that if we implant them, let's say, into an injured tissue, they will regrow and unable to enable, essentially, the tissue to repair. We are increasingly seeing that it's not simply a brick-and-mortar interaction. They are, they are truly engaging the healing processes from within. So you actually heal. The cells help you heal by yourself. The, the way the skin, when we cut it, will, will heal on its own. Here, very complex organ tissues like the, the spinal cord has some attempts to, to heal. And um, in essence, we are using these technologies to promote, essentially, this, uh, this healing. We still do not know what gets to ultimately uh, ensure the repair, but clearly it's promising. Is it nerves that are being repaired or muscles? What, what exactly is happening? In this particular case, the tissue that allows the nerve conduction. In other cases, as you mentioned, could be the end organ, the muscle, for example. But think of stem cells as only one technology. You know, we used to put uh, an equal sign between regenerative medicine and stem cell medicine. But increasingly, there are many more technologies that are being developed. You may not even need those seeds. You may be able to extract what really works within them, the active ingredient, and uh, use it as a, as a way to, to, to repair. So we speak of acellular regeneration, regeneration without stem cells. Hmm. So isn't it interesting that most tissues in our body have the ability to repair themselves, but the spinal cord does not? So what you did was you took some stem cells, injected them adjacent to the severed spinal cord, and helped it repair itself? The concept that some organs cannot repair is increasingly being challenged. Hmm. We, even uh, the spinal cord? Even the spinal cord. We went to school, medical school, they told us the spinal cord cannot repair. Mm -hmm. we, they told us you will die with the heart you were born with. In other words, the heart cannot repair. But increasingly, we're understanding there is an innate ability of self-renewal. So each of our tissues may be at a very, in a very subtle way can somewhat repair itself. And the goal of regenerative medicine is to boost that ability of self-repair. So we all want to be like the liver, because the liver can regenerate. Can you learn some lessons from the liver? Indeed, from the liver, from the skin, from organs that typically are much uh, more readily renewable than others will be a guide how to, to proceed. 
What are other muscular uses? I mean, it, in my head, I'm thinking aging. I mean, so is how is this going to affect how we age? The goal with aging is not necessarily to extend lifespan. I think the goal and where regenerative medicine comes uh, central is to extend health span to match lifespan. And so we see it in many chronic diseases. And we see essentially regenerative medicine as a way not to fight disease. You know, we used to say we fight cancer, we fight cardiovascular disease, we fight diabetes, many of the diseases that come with with aging. Here, regenerative medicine is enabling us to speak more of rebuilding health. That's the essence, really, of, of the regenerative process. And when we say rebuilding health, is not just restoring form and function of a specific organ or tissue, but ideally, ultimately, rebuilding the human being in its, in its totality, so a holistic almost process mm-hmm. of regenerative medicine. Now, I know you've been working for a long time on repairing heart muscle. Can you give us an update there? Because once someone has a heart attack and part of the muscle dies, the, the heart, we've always been told, can't regenerate. What's dead is dead, but may not be true. Yeah, we have had indeed a remarkable experience with uh, heart regeneration and in particular in a condition called heart failure. So this will be a condition after a heart attack where part of the muscle, as you mentioned, dies out. And what do we do for that part of the muscle? So really what we are doing, we are leveraging the self-repair capacity of the heart by introducing other stem cells, or now more increasingly these cellular approaches, the, the activating the juice of the stem cells, and achieving a repair that is indeed uh, very significant in many cases. But again, more research will be needed to fully establish these technologies going forward. So it may be that you're not going to die with the heart you were born with. Indeed. And what about uh, or the need for organ transplant? Are we going to get to a spot where we can grow the organ that we need? That's a huge field of interest and unmet need. And uh, tissue engineering being one component of the regenerative toolkit is indeed able to to make us dream and now no more dream anymore. Actually, there are very concrete examples of new organs that are built in this way. An effort here at the Mayo Clinic uh, is to build a new um, voice box, a new larynx. And uh, At the national level, this effort has been recognized and Mayo Clinic has been given the green light, actually, to launch the first uh, letting transplant through regenerative technology in this space. So that's amazing. So would this be someone who had injured their larynx or someone who had cancer of the larynx and had to be removed? Indeed, that will be a case, let's say, of an individual with cancer of the larynx. Uh, Sometimes uh, the, the voice is lost at that time. And uh, through this regenerative intervention, you can be fortunate to may need to remove maybe just half of the larynx and replace it with with a new half. One that you grew in the lab? That you grew in the lab and that you take advantage also of the body parts of the individual. And ultimately, uh, voice can be regained. So restoring not just form, but ultimately function 
is very critical. Regenerative medicine, the process of replacing or regenerating human cells, tissues, or organs to restore function. Regenerative medicine is also working on being able to grow tissues and organs in the lab and implanting them into someone who can't heal on their own. Exciting stuff. Our thanks to the director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine, Dr. Andre Terzik. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.